Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Movie Beat Conversations with Filmmakers, where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. Let me tell you, my guest today is Mr. Jeff Greenstein. He is the director, a producer, a showrunner, a writer of so many different things. I started with HBO's Dream On, Friends, Will and Grace, Parenthood, Desperate Housewives, and and more, and the up, and the is now currently running Husbands, the series. It's a web series on the internet, and so you're going to want to stay tuned. You're going to listen to him. And uh, and also, the chat room is open, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Jeff in just a moment. Chat room's open, so if you're listening live, you can join us uh, there in the chat room. The official website of Rex Sykes Movie Beat is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. That's my name. I'm your host. And I'm glad that you're here with me today, both live or archived. If you're listening live, as I said, the chat room is available to you. If you're listening archived, sorry, that's not an option. At least in this day and age, we haven't figured out how you can listen to a re- Anyway, the point being is that all of these shows are archived at RexSykes.com and the interviews blog. So there's over 270 hours of programming with professional filmmakers who are giving secrets, tips, advice, suggestions to help you make your projects, get them done easier, faster, less expensively, get them to market, get them to audience, and to advance your careers. And so all we ask of you whether you're listening live or archived, is to share these interviews. Go ahead and, and reach out right now, as a matter of fact. Call somebody, email them, Twitter, Facebook. Use your favorite social media means and reach out and ask somebody to listen with you or tell them about the show so they can listen on their own anytime, 24-7. These shows are also available as podcasts from iTunes. Now, one other thing I ask of you, because Movie Beat is really designed as a resource for you, and that's why I'm connecting you up with professionals uh, who are making it happen every day they're in the trenches, is I ask you to leave comments. Leave comments at the player. Blog Talk Radio Player has a comment window that's beneath the player. Sometimes it's open depending on your browser all through the show. You can leave comments during the show. Or some browsers, you have to wait until the player closes down and then the comment window appears. Whatever it is for you, please do take a moment. If you've enjoyed listening to these programs free and you've enjoyed my guests, please do leave comments. Also, you can rate and review the podcast at iTunes. Rate and review them. Leave comments because it helps extend our reach to other people who may not yet know about the show. It increases our visibility, ups our ratings on Google and on the Internet, and and just makes us that much more visible. So I ask if you would do that uh, for us in exchange for the information, the tips, the golden nuggets, and all the valuable advice that uh, my guests are giving to you. All right, without any other hesitation, I'd like to tell you a bit about my guest. 
Jeff Greenstein is a director, and his first job was on the HBO series Dream On, and he stayed with that show for five seasons, garnering several industry awards, including a cable ace. And then he signed on for the first year of NBC Friends, earning two Emmy nominations, one for co-writing the show's first Thanksgiving episode. And he co-created Fox's Late Lamented Partners, a series starring John Cryer and Tate Donovan, which won critical plaudits. Uh, and after that, he joined the staff of NBC's Will & Grace early in his inaugural year. He spent six years as head writer and then a fifth and sixth season as showrunner, picking up an Emmy for Best Comedy Series, six nominations, and a writing nomination, the only one in the show's history for the one-hour flashback episode, Lowe's in the Mid-80s. After leaving Will & Grace, he joined the ABC's Desperate Housewives and remained there for three seasons as part of the team credited with the show's creative resurgence. Then after a year spent launching NBC's acclaimed series, Parenthood, he returned to Housewives as not only a writer and executive producer, but also as a director, helming the Season 7 Halloween show and two more episodes in Season 8. More recently, Jeff has directed and executive produced the 11-episode web series Husbands, co-created by Jane Espenson, which garnered rave review in The New Yorker and was voted TV Line's best web series of 2011. Now, he's currently developing a pilot for ABC based on a partnership of Mary Sue Milken and Susan Feniger, I'm going to believe, uh, celebrity chefs behind City Restaurant, Ciudad uh, and Border Grill. The show is uh, set on Melrose Avenue in 1985. So imagine the haircuts. And without any uh, further hesitation, let me bring Jeff on. How are you doing today, Jeff? Great, thanks, Rex. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are How are you doing? Now you you've been busy. So uh, if you don't mind me asking, what do you mind telling us what you did just recently? I just finished uh, directing the. Let me think. 16th episode of the eighth season of Desperate Housewives, an episode entitled You Take for Granted. Uh, I just uh, wrapped production of that uh, Thursday evening uh, and start editing it tomorrow, so you're catching me during a rare gap in the schedule. But uh, the last couple of weeks I've been completely underneath that. And that's why I'm so thrilled that you're here. You're a busy, busy, busy man. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for being here. Sure. And, uh, and wow, you know that's really, I mean, uh, you know, an impressive uh, list of of shows. I mean, every show that I could think of that that I mentioned has celebrated, you know, numerous seasons and and uh, huge audiences and uh, and go down in TV history as excellent excellent TV shows. Yeah, I've been uh, pretty lucky to uh, find myself in the right place at the right time a lot. Um, but I also left some of the crummier ones off the resume, so it sounds more impressive. <laughs> there were one or two lousy ones in between that didn't make the cut for the resumes, you know. So it sounds better to say I went straight from doing uh, uh, partners to doing Will and Grace than to say I did a really bad Fox comedy in between that led to the breakup of my partnership with my writing partner. You know, I just leave that part out. <laughs> well, and you're humble. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I do. I so appreciate you being here, and it is, sure. it is impressive. How how did you get started? I mean, um, uh, the ups and downs and everything. How how did that work out for you? What, uh, well, start? you know, I, I I my career has a prehistory that I can't really recommend to anybody. Uh, the fact that I ended up doing what I'm doing is is kind of a miracle. Uh, 
you know, I went to, uh, let's see, I'll go way back in the midst of history. Um, when I came out of uh, high school in Atlanta, where I grew up, uh, I wanted to be a computer scientist. Uh, this was the early 80s, and that seemed like an extremely good idea, and I had spent a lot of my uh, grammar school and junior high career tinkering with uh, computers and technology and so forth. So I was going to be an engineer, and uh, I enrolled in the College of Engineering at Tufts University in Boston. And uh, very quickly discovered after a semester in the engineering department that that was not for me. Um, but during that time, I took an Italian cinema class um, just as a lark. I mean, literally just popped open the course catalog and took the first class that appeared and uh, was completely taken with uh, filmmaking. I had never seen art cinema of any sort before. Um, I think my favorite movie at that point was The Bad News Bears, which is still <laughs> honestly a really great uh -huh. movie. Um, but uh, I, I just did not have any understanding of film as art uh, before that class, and it turned my head around. And um, by the midpoint of my college career, I really wanted to be a filmmaker. And uh, my college had a cross-registration program with uh, an art school in Boston, the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. So I started taking filmmaking courses there, and I really wanted to be a director. Um, and then there was an interesting sort of, I mean, if this were a, a, a screenplay, the, uh, the late second act turn would be when I became – uh, enraptured with choreography as well. And so wow. I ended up designing my own major in college, uh, which was about analyzing the formal relationship between filmmaking and choreography. But again, this was wow. all in furtherance of a career as a director. Um, and when I moved to Los Angeles uh, right after graduation, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, I had a uh, job set on an American Film Institute project, a short film, um, and basically spent every penny I had to get set up in Los Angeles. Um, and then it kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And uh, by the fall of the following year, I was completely out of money. I was working as a word processor at a Japanese insurance company to uh, support myself. And then the film was canceled altogether. So I was kind of stranded. And um, I lured a college friend of mine, uh, Jeff Strauss, to Los Angeles, um, who had similar uh, ambitions to me. And because, really, there was nothing we could do to further our directing careers at that point, we started <laughs> right. writing together. Um, and we started writing, a, really, a big, sprawling, uh, what we thought was fantastically commercial screenplay. And that was sort of the start of a writing career. I never studied screenwriting. Uh, I did really well on the English AP, so I don't think I took a single writing class or English class throughout college. Um, but I'm kind of... Uh, in a combination of self-taught and taught by the excellent writers that I worked with. Um, but that's when it wow. all started. Wow. Well, that, that, that's quite magical. But, I mean, because, I mean, the, the – I don't know. I mean, you start off, like, doing the hardest stuff, comedy. I mean, it's not, Yeah. You yeah, know, that's I mean, amazing. we and, – and honestly, Rex, we did not know what we were doing. I remember going with my partner to see uh, Ghostbusters, and this is really dating uh -huh. me now because Ghostbusters was fairly new at the point. And we, had, we were like in the middle of Act 2 of our big, sprawling comedy screenplay, and we went to see Ghostbusters. We like, ours is better than this. Come on. Wow. I mean, we were so completely uh, naive and uneducated about how to do it. Um, but we just kept writing. We wrote one big, ugly screenplay, and then we wrote another big, ugly screenplay, um, and just kept plugging away. And then there was uh, sort of a turn in the narrative when we decided to turn our attention to TV, um, and that's when sort of everything changed for us. 
Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, how did that happen? How did when you turned when you turned your attention toward television? Well, uh, you know, as I said, we had been pounding away on these screenplays, trying to get noticed somehow. And um, uh, my girlfriend at the time was working as a uh, placement counselor at a temp agency. And uh, there was a job that came available that came across her desk for a secretary in the comedy department at ABC. Um, And my partner, Jeff Strauss, was looking for work at the time. And so he went in on this job and got it um, and ended up working like on the desk of one of the comedy development executives at ABC at the same time as we were kind of toiling away on our bad screenplays. And as we were doing that, these amazing scripts were going across his desk, you know. And at the time, ABC was doing um, Moonlighting and Roseanne and The Wonder Years. It was just a fantastic time for the network. And we looked at these scripts and we thought, well, not only are they extremely good, but they're a lot shorter. And so we had this revelation that, like, perhaps instead of continuing to toil away at a 120-page unmanageable screenplay that maybe a uh, 25-page or 30-page uh, sitcom script might be uh, a better target for us. So we just, I mean, it was, it was that simple. We thought, oh, these are shorter, and we started writing television. In addition, because my partner was, you know, answering phones for people in uh, comedy development, he was getting to know agents and agents' assistants and other executives and so forth. So we started to get a sense of the lay of the land. So when we finally had a writing sample that, was, that we thought was good enough, Jeff had a phone relationship with an agent, and we said, hey, will you read our script? And he did, and he ultimately ended up taking us on. Um, and that was, the, you know, that was when we first started to kind of, uh, you know, we had representation, and so that helped get us get our work seen. That is amazing. I mean, that truly, truly is amazing. Um, what is it, if, if I had to ask you, you know, what is it about making comedy? I don't, I'm trying to phrase the question. How do you make comedy good? I mean, it's, it's so hard to, to write. It's so hard to act. It's, it's got to be just as hard to direct. And then you're, you throw it into a TV timeline yeah. you know, where, where things are so hectic. I, it just it's it's awesome. I mean, it, it re- when it works, it truly, truly works. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know how to say it other than no. I understand what you're saying. I, I I think you know for us, I mean, you've reached an we've reached a good junction in the uh, story at this point because at this point, again, we were entirely self-taught. Um, and I would say that the the spec scripts that we were writing at that point and. You know, for those of you who do not travel in TV circles, a spec script is a sample script of a show that you think you could write really, really well. Um, we were writing sample episodes of Family Ties and Perfect Strangers and Night Court and so forth. And these were all sort of uh, machines that we had put together. We, we thought of a comedic situation and we wrapped ideas around it and so forth. And we began to sort of understand the flow of story and how you bring things to a comedic climax and so forth. But they were all machinery. Um, the big change for us was, it was actually after the, uh, not the last big writer's strike, but the big writer's strike before that, that we felt we needed to write a new uh, spec script. And at the time, Murphy Brown was a very new show, and we thought Murphy Brown was really good and that it was going to stick around for a while. And we had an idea for an episode, which was about uh, Miles Silverberg. You know, if you recall the show at all, he was the uh, uh, executive producer character in the show, and he was much younger than Murphy, uh, kind of a young, yuppie hotshot who, uh-huh. who had been brought in to run Candace Bergen's uh, new show. And so we, did it, we had an idea for an episode about him having this massive crisis when he turns 30, 
because he's not going to be a prodigy anymore. And uh, this was something that both Jeff and I were feeling very acutely because we had been out here for a while and we were plugging away and we were worried that like we weren't successful fast enough. And so we took a lot of that anxiety and poured it into this script. And as a result, and of course you can imagine what Murphy Brown at 47 thought about a 30-year-old having this huge crisis of confidence, you know, this huge crisis of confidence. It was a very comedic situation, but it also had an emotional underpinning that was very real to us. And so as a result, it was an infinitely better script than anything we had written before. Because it it was grounded in something real that was happening to us. And to circle back to your question, it had a point of view. It was actually about something. It was about something that we were actually experiencing. And so as a result, it was not only funny, but it also had the ring of truth to it. And that is the script that opened all the doors for us. Um, that was the script that got us the meeting at Dream On that led to our first staff job. Uh, because there was more going on than just the jokes and the mechanics. It actually had a life to it. Um, and I find even now the scripts that move me and the shows that move me are the ones that aren't just assemblages, but you really feel the writer knows what he or she is talking about and has experienced it in some way, a point of view. That's an excellent answer. I mean, it truly is. I mean, it, I think it, 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 it helps people wrap their brain around it because I, my, my sister writes and has written for television. I've never written a television script. I, I you know, I'll write films and stuff like that, that, that are neither here nor there, but, but I, I think television writing has got to be one of the, I think hardest things to do because you have, you know, with a screenplay, I can say, well, it's supposed to be 90 minutes or it's supposed to be two hours. You know, I, I can hatch and fudge, but with TV, right. I got to hit, you know, the minute mark and I've got to know that there are going to be commercial breaks and there's going to be, you know, different, there's a different structure to it, a different set. And I've got to, I've got to not only establish these characters and this, what, what you say, but a point of view is something that, that feels real and, and, you know, pertinent besides just gags. And I mean, to me, it just seems like nearly an insurmountable task. And obviously it isn't because some people like yourself and Jane and people do it really well. Yeah, well, I do think, you know, I think that the half-hour television comedy pilot is one of the hardest things to pull off, Um, especially in a world where the size of a network half-hour has shrunk to the point where it's under 22 minutes. Um, And there are three act breaks. So all the things you just described, Rex, are true. You have to tell a tight little story. You have to introduce all the characters. You have to... Uh, you have to set up a central predicament for the series. You have to, you know, and infuse it all with that point of view that we were talking about. It's, it is a, it's, it's like watchmaking. There is so much precision involved. And there's not really a lot of time for a single wasted move. Um, and that's why the great half-hour pilots, like the Cheers pilot or the Mary Tyler Moore pilot or the Frasier pilot, are so wondrous to behold because they do so much. Uh, so elegantly, you know, it's like looking at the inside of a Fabergé egg. Um, they have so much elegance and precision to them. In an hour show or in a screenplay, it's okay to be a little shaggier and a little looser, um, and, you know, and to and to digress in places. But uh, the half hour, that's why when you know when agents tell their young clients, "Well, you're going to need a spec pilot," my heart sinks. Because nobody who has not written a whole bunch of television should be really trying to write a half-hour pilot. It is the hardest wow. thing to pull off. Um, and yet that's what agents now tell their young clients is that as a writing sample, it would be really good to have a half-hour pilot. But they are really, really hard. 
And, uh, you know, even when I sit down to write one, I go back and I look at those great shows and look at, like, how were they put together? How did they do it? Um, the elegance, uh, you know, is really uh, – it's, it's a hard thing to achieve. Um, and, uh, and even harder is to do a, a half-hour pilot that isn't entirely about its premise. Um, so anyway, we can get into all this. Uh, you know, I have lots and lots of theories about it. But uh, you are right when you say that uh, the television pilot writing is very, very tough. Episodic well, television writing, once you have the formula of a show down, it actually can become – it's almost like, well, okay, we know what a haiku looks like. It's that 575 thing, okay? It can become the simplicity of the design of a half-hour show can actually make it significantly easier. Will and Grace at a certain point became uh, – people are going to uh, find this kind of hard to believe, but it became an easy show to write. It only had four characters. It only had two stories per episode. It only had one act break, and we knew exactly what the show was about. So there was a simplicity to it. It had really high-quality jokes and really funny story turns, right. but it became a lot easier. Um, but you know, the, the initial design of the show and figuring out what that formula was was very difficult. It's amazing, and and well, you're right. I mean, I could I could spend you know days and weeks and months, I think, just listening to you talk about this because <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but now, just to return, just for briefly, when an agent says, "Okay, write a spec pilot," you know, half hour pilot, you being on the opposite side now, you know, directing, show running, producing, writing, and all this, you know, in with the studios and everything, is that what they want? I mean, is that what the networks want? Is that what they actually, or is that just what agents are telling people? You know, well, I think agents, and this specifically uh, speaks to what uh, what agents do in an attempt to break a young writer. Um, not break them like a mule, but actually get their work seen um, <laughs> and to get them jobs. Um, you know, the the trend when I was coming up through the ranks was that you had to have a portfolio of spec scripts, which were sample scripts of, of existing half hours. So when Jeff and I were starting out, we had a Murphy Brown. We had, like I said, a Perfect Strangers, a Night Court. We had a uh, Growing Pains. We had a My Two Dads. We had, you know, we wrote every kind of show. Um, we discovered we were not very good at writing family shows, so we stopped doing that at a certain point. But romantic comedy and buddy comedy and things like that, we wrote a lot of those sample scripts. Um, there has been a decided shift in what agents ask their clients to do now because people like me who are on the other side of the uh, transom who are reading this material tend to get bored with reading, oh, here's another episode of The Office. Here's another episode of Community. Um, I got very burned out as a showrunner look, you know, reading writers for potential staffing positions with reading The 11th Roseanne or The 100th Frasier. And so I would say, do they have any original material? I don't care what it is, ah. something original, so that I can see if there's evidence of that point of view we were talking about before. What's their worldview? What do they think about? Um, and so I would say, I don't care if it's a New Yorker cartoon or an essay or a short film that they made. Just show me something besides the 100th Larry Sanders show spec. Um, and I was, I think, one of the unwitting progenitors of a big trend that has transformed the, uh, the business over the last five years because now all writers are told to write is original material. Um, and it is more often than not the case that when an agent is trying to bring a writer to my attention, they'll say they have a play or they have a pilot or something as opposed to they have a community or they have a, uh, you know, or a, a, the office. So it's changed a lot, I think, because, you know, 
Uh, agents are looking for ways to get their young writers' attention, and a, and a well-executed spec pilot definitely does that. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, re- it really, truly does. Uh, it is amazing. Um, I want to go back into your, your tenure on, on some of these shows, but I, sure. I want to ask this question, too, before, I guess, and, and maybe you can address it as we go along, and that is, because of the time involved in TV, uh, actors bring it in more so than maybe in film, the luxury of of, uh, of having rehearsal time and everything else. Yeah. How do you, I mean, you know, it's, it's I mean, uh, I got to, you know, my, my kids love Disney, so, I mean, you're looking at all right. these, like, 14, 13-year-old actors. I got to admit, I gotta, I gotta, there's got to be some coaching, some directing, some kind of a semblance of shaping that goes on during that week of rehearsal and everything else that that allows the uh, actor to to deliver the the performance that the director sees. Yeah. The, you know, well, the, the, you know, the, oh, keep going. Keep going. Sorry, I, I sense no, there's a second half of your question. <laughs> no, no, not really. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like, you know, somebody gets the show tomorrow. Obviously, they're up to snuff to get the show. Hopefully, and then, and then what happens? How much, how much can you expect? as an actor working in television comedy or getting a series like this, as opposed to doing a walk on or five and under or something, how much, how much, how much can they expect to have uh, someone contribute to shaping their character besides them just trying to learn it? Well, it's interesting. That's a really, really good question. And uh, uh, I'm going to talk in response to that about what the process was like on Will and Grace, because I think in terms of, an opportunity for an actor, you know, let's say it's somebody who's coming in as a guest actor, and uh, and you know, we and we were legendary for our guest stars on that show. That's uh, definitely um, right. You All know, right. it yep. isn't in the the, and I'll do this in miniature because I think this is something that's probably been widely talked about if you've talked to any TV writers. But what happens over the course of the production week for a given episode? Um, Will and Grace was what we call a Wednesday Tuesday show, meaning that we would have the initial table read on a Wednesday. And then Thursday and Friday were rehearsal days. Monday was a camera blocking day. And then we would shoot the show on Tuesday night. So there were opportunities on the Wednesday and the Thursday and the Friday for the writers to hear the actors perform the material, starting with what is basically a cold reading on the first day. And then on the second and third day, an opportunity to rehearse with a director and work out everything from line readings to blocking and so forth. The other thing that happens, though, which might surprise actors who you know, are not familiar with the process, is that the, the writers are tuning the material to what they sense the actor does best. And so in addition to the actors trying to you know, learn the words and learn how to do the words in a funny way, the writers are paring away things that don't work. And so it becomes like a tennis match. Like you try it, and if it's great, maybe we give you a little more of that flavor. And if it's not great, maybe we pare back that flavor a little bit and try something else. And so the thing that's most enjoyable, I think, for both actors and writers on those multi-camera shows is that it's like a little mini out-of-town tryout. You're kind of workshopping the script over the course of that week between the time the actors first get the script and the Tuesday night. Um, and that's what I enjoyed most about doing those multi-camera comedies, is that you really get an opportunity for the actors and the director and the writers to work closely together and to say, okay, what's working and not working about this scene or this joke or this story? And hopefully by the time you put the show on its feet on Tuesday night, you've worked out all those kinks, and the audience sees something that's really polished and works great. 
So without uh, without adding or detracting, I mean, you know, something like when you say Will and Grace, you know, the whole Just Jack thing, that, that <laughs> you know, things like that. I mean, is that something the actor, you know, helps fashion, or is that something that the writers wrote and, and then Sean ends up, you know, create, you know, uh, carrying out, at, you know, or, or collaborative in the creation of it? I mean, I mean, there there are things that, I mean, there are things about. Um, I guess the I can understand how you know the the actor learns the part and becomes the character as time goes on, even though they are the character from the start. I mean, you know that develops and grows, and that there's got to be a place where they could they could and I don't want to use the term phone it in because it means something else, but where they could almost phone it in because they they know this character inside and out, and then with the help uh-huh. of the writer and the director, you know they can do the thing, um, but that can't be true in the early days. Well, you're still, I mean, again, this is one of the really fun things about shows like that is that you're embarking on a process of discovery with your cast. I mean, it's interesting that you cite Just Jack because that was something that started as a throwaway joke in season one or season two, and Sean was just so funny doing it that we kept putting it in episodes to the point where Sean actually finally asked us to stop because people were coming up (laughs) to him on the street and doing it to him all the time. Um, But you discover things, you know, uh, you discover things about your actors personally that you infuse into the character. I mean, we, you know, uh, uh, we would make fun of Deborah Messing's feet or the fact that people always thought she had a nose job when she didn't actually have a nose job or her small breasts or whatever. There were things that the actor would like enjoy making fun of about themselves that we would infuse into the character. Will's bushy eyebrows and giant forehead, Karen's big breasts. Uh, you know, we would, we would uh, constantly be playing with the instrument and uh, we would see the actors do something funny, uh, you know, in a rehearsal or something and say, Oh my God, we can make something of that. Um, as I said, it's like a big tennis match and we would constantly be batting the ball back and forth. And the writers would fall in love with certain bits like Grace being a big pig and eating like a horse and so forth. And so that you'd see a series of episodes that would be all about that. And then we'd fall out of love with it. We'd move on to the next funny thing. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, a constant collaboration. And that's, that's what I enjoyed so much about doing those multi-camera shows is that it was very, very collaborative. Um, and, uh, and there was a lot of opportunity for the writers to help shape the actors' performances, but also for the actors to help shape the characters. What is, what is particularly uh, enjoyable about listening to you talk is the enthusiasm that you bring to the subject. Yeah. I mean, you really do. You alive. It's very, very cool. It, it truly is. Um, well, I, and, I mean, listen, I still love it. I really, I've been doing it for a long time, but I would say uh, – I am not jaded. I know people who get kind of like, oh, God, this again. But, uh, but I am just restless enough to quit jobs before they, um, they become boring to me, uh, which may be the reason that my resume looks as cool as it does. <laughs> well, that's cool. <laughs> so let's, let's, can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, you, you've been on so many of these big shows that, you know, TV history. What, is there uh, any parts or um, aspects of, of one or each that, that you – wouldn't mind sharing. I'll just leave it a, a, a an open question like that. Yeah. Um. I mean, look. Uh, Dream on was the best first job a young writer could ever have. Um. For a number of reasons. First of all, it was one of HBO's first forays into scripted uh, original series. I mean, we think of HBO as this towering edifice of original content, but at the time, HBO was still a movie channel, um, and they had just started to dip a toe into the original series business. 
And what we were told by the executives who were running HBO at the time was anything you do, just make sure it's something you couldn't do on a network because our entire brand is it's not TV, it's HBO. And so they were constantly pushing us to infuse the show with what they called cable edge. So make it adult, make it sexy, make it offbeat, make it druggy, make it anything that you couldn't do on a network. And I will say that as training for a young writer, there is no better way to get a writer to push themselves and look beyond TV formulas and look for different sorts of answers to problems. I mean, we did uh, probably one of the most famous episodes we did on Dream On was um, an episode that Jeff Strauss and I uh, were lucky enough to get to write, which was about um, uh, the main character, Martin, finding a joint in his son's drawer and giving him the just say no talk, like you've seen on a million sitcoms. Uh And then he goes and smokes the joint himself and his kid catches him. (laughs) Now, the beginning of that story is totally what you do on a network. But you can't have your main character smoke pot on a network show. (laughs) Um, And so as a result, it gave rise to a story that was more honest and more bracing and obviously, Rex, a lot funnier than anything the networks could do. And that that was very typical of our approach to storytelling. The other thing that was great about that show was... It was uh, Marta Kaufman and David Crane who created the show were brand new. They were playwrights from New York. It was the first series they had created. They were very, very bright and very young and very energetic. And we felt like we were inventing something really cool at the fringes of the business. Um, and it's a feeling I had again when we did this web series, Husbands, uh, to circle to something much more recent, which was it was like TV summer camp. It was like, let's do something fun that's completely off the grid. They're just the kind of show that we want to make, not thinking about the audience at all. And again, these are great lessons for a young writer. It's like, just do the thing that you're excited about. Don't worry about the people at home. Do the thing that, you know, that lights your candle. And that's what we were doing. Um, and Marta and David were tremendously supportive of Jeff and me, even though we were baby writers and didn't know anything. And uh, I learned so, so much doing it. We also benefited from having an executive producer and director in John Landis who could get amazing people to come do the show. Like, I mean, I will never forget, as long as I live, sitting at this, you know, outside this warehouse in North Hollywood where we shot the show at a cafe table talking about radio with David Bowie, who was one of our guest stars. I mean, in what universe does like a 26-year-old writer get to do that? Uh, Sylvester Stallone did our show, Mimi Rogers, Tom Berenger, Zsa Zsa Gabor. Uh, I mean, the, the most incredible people that John knew personally would come and guest star on our show. And so it was a total, total trip. And uh, uh, I, to- I just loved it. Um, so as a first job, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better. Wow. You know what? I want to take I, – I, I could wait another five or six minutes, but I'm going to take the break right now, if you don't mind. Sure. And uh, just hang with me for a second. I'm going to tell uh, the listeners uh, who's coming up, and then uh, we'll be right back. And that way we will be uninterrupted. Uh, you're cool. listening to Rex Spike's Movie Beat. Thank you, Jeff. And you're listening to my guest, Jeff Greenstein. And he's directed and produced and written so many shows. Uh, if you haven't been listening to this point, you've got to go back and listen. I'm not even going to tell you any more than that. But you can go back and listen. And do share these interviews with everybody far and wide or near and far. And uh, and do leave comments after the show. My next guest is Joe Dante. He's the film director. He'll be coming up tomorrow. Uh, we got a time change, though. It's going to be at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific time. Uh, and, uh, and, and that will be Joe. 
Monkeys and Gremlins and The Howling and Piranha and uh, so many movies. Masters of the Univ- uh, Masters of Horror TV series for uh, television and, and others. Uh, so join us for Joe Dante. And then Peter Marshall's coming up on Friday. He's continuing our director series. We're going to be talking again more about performance and scene analysis with the actors, breaking it down, working with the with the the talent, and and then also filming the talent. How easiest uh, is most easily shoot. Uh, your scenes. All right, so that's what's coming up. Then we're on hiatus until March, and uh, you're going to want to join us in March because we've got a lot of great guests coming up, but I'm not going to tell you who they are yet. All right, so you're listening to uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat, RexSykes.com, and my guest today is Jeff Greenstein. Jeff, you there? Yes. I'm so excited you're going to interview Joe Dante. How cool. Joe, yeah, this is very, very cool. And and, uh, I have uh, uh, been looking forward to doing this for a long time, uh, my tenor in Hollywood started in 1974, and Joe Joe is a friend of friends of mine and things like that. And so I I don't know Joe well, so it's uh, exciting to be able to uh, to uh, have this interview come up. That'll so be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so let's switch real fast to um, because I wanted to talk about you know different different shows like you know single camera versus multi camera and the difference between a half hour and and an hour and talk about desperate housewives and things like that. But I want to switch right now to husbands the series because now this is this is uh, a comedy web series. It's it's got great production value. It's it's talented actors cast. It's written uh, by talented writers and, and produced by you and Jane and and I mean it's really it's really well done. And yet you have to do all of your comedy in a, about two minutes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so how do you do it? I mean, because you watch the episodes, they are funny. I mean, and and you try to establish the characters, and and uh, it is amazing. How, how how do you pull that off? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's a perfect segue from what we were talking about earlier, Rex, because I was when I was speaking about the challenges of doing a half hour comedy pilot and having to establish all that information in uh, 21 minutes imagine if you have to do it in a tenth that time um, right. it's uh, you know i think that uh, jane and uh, brad bell who wrote the script together did a magnificent job of taking what is essentially a 21 minute pilot and then finding a way to write it in 11 you know basically two minute slices um, it's like uh, you know a three-dimensional crossword puzzle, the thing that they were able to pull off. Because you feel like by the end of that first episode, which you can watch at HusbandTheSeries.com, uh, by the end of that first episode, you know a great deal about these two guys. You know that Brady's right, an athlete. Right. You know that you know you know they're you know you know that Cheeks is a TV actor. You know their point of view. You know they're comedic. Um, you know, they, you, you understand comedically which each, you know, where, where each of these guys is coming from. And you're also getting the comedic predicament that these two have, wake, have woken up in Las Vegas after a drunken evening and they're married to each other. And all of that is delivered to you in less than 180 seconds. It's kind of incredible. Um, it is. And I completely credit the writers uh, with brilliantly miniaturizing the exposition so that you learn an enormous amount very, very fast. But I also got to credit Sean Hemian and, uh, and Brad Bell, Cheeks, who plays Cheeks in the show, for having such an extraordinary grasp of their character that you're already laughing by their second or third joke because you get that very, very quickly. Um, and uh, that is something that I think is really um, 
endemic to TV is that an actor inhabits his or her character to a point where you're almost laughing in anticipation of their next line. And I think that something that, that both Sean and Cheeks do remarkably well in that first episode is help you understand them and their point of view so fast that you can enjoy them and laugh with them by the end of that first episode. And then you take the ride. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. I, I, you know, as a director, I basically just sort of sit back and make sure I get my shots. Um, but these <laughs> these guys, Sean and and Brad and Alessandra Torresani, who plays Haley, who makes an entrance a little later in the series, just uh-huh. had such a firm grasp of their characters that uh, that you just got them right away. And I want to say that it is husbandstheseries.com. That's right. Again, the website right. is husbands the series.com and you should go take a look at it it is fun i i watched the entire series that i went back this morning and and watched i didn't watch all of it this morning that I, I did start over again uh to be prepped for today and uh and i'm going to go back and watch the rest of the series cool it, it definitely it, merits it, repeat it, viewings there's a lot of little easter eggs and fun things in there for yeah it yeah it really it really does it's a good it's a, it's so so now i mean you said i just i sit back and get my shots but i want to ask you as a director who's worked with Got countless number of actors, and in the, you know the top you know comedy TV series you know you know on television. Um, what advice can you give actors about doing what you just suggest that that they do inhabit their character? How how can you help uh, an actor listening today bring out the performance or be you know ready for doing something like this? What what do they need to know or inhabit or embody? that uh, would allow them to be successful. I, I think that in, in the same way in which I, as a writer, when I sit down to write a script, have to find a point of intersection between the story and my own experience. I think it is essential for an actor to find a point of intersection between themselves and the character. And I've never taken an acting class, and I, the, the ways in which actors achieve what they achieve is utterly mysterious to me. But I will say that and actors hate hearing this. But when I'm casting a pilot, for example, when the actor walks in the room, I know whether they're going to get it or not. Before they even open their mouth, I can just tell whether they in some way border on the person that I've written. And so I think for an actor, it's find that point at which you are this person. Do I have their innocence? Do I have their savvy? Do I have their anger? Do I have their frustration? Do I have their ambivalent sexuality? Do I have their find a place where they are you and exploit it and make it part of your performance? Because that will give it the authenticity uh, that no amount of acting can provide. Um, in my experience, the actors, you know, those four actors on Will and Grace, it isn't just that we tuned the material to what those four could do. They each in some way were those people. You know, one thing that that, that um, I remember having a conversation with Megan Mullally about this, because I think her performance as Karen is one of the most remarkable performances I've ever seen by a comedic actor, um, because wow. Karen was utterly horrible in so many ways. But I remember Megan saying to me, the trick is Karen loves herself. She loves uh-huh. who she is. She doesn't have a single moment of doubt about the things she says and does. And so the thing about Megan is she enjoys what she does, and she brought that joy to Karen. And the reason people found Karen entertaining was because Megan's joy infused everything Karen did. 
Um, and so that's the point of intersection that she found. Megan is not a big drunk. Megan is, is not a big extra, extrovert. Megan is not a sexual libertine. But she found a way to, to you know, find a, a point of commonality with that character in that joy with which Karen approaches the world. Wow. I mean, that, that is, that's, that's awesome advice. Is there, you know, I know what you said earlier, you said actors will hate to hear that, but that's the reality of the situation, and I think everybody has to embrace what the truth is when it comes to, you know, auditioning and getting roles. And Yeah, uh, I mean, the thing is, there's, I, I really respect what actors do, and I don't want to underrate what actors do in the creation of a character because, as I said, it's utterly mystifying to me. And uh, and when actors are as brilliant as some of the actors that I've worked with, it, it's breathtaking to behold. But in series television, which is where most of my experience is, it, you really need to be the person in a very meaningful way. Um, and... Uh, and as uh, no number of classes will make that happen. It will help you get closer, but you really have to find that, that point where you are them. And so for the actor coming in and they're picking up their sides or they got their script the night before or whenever they've got it, they're going to come in, they're going to see you, and there's still going to be those hundreds of people you know, that, that go through the casting process and everything else and that whole weeding out process. Um, the, the suggestions that you just gave, uh, enhance, can enhance, you know, their performance. They may not get it, but what I'm saying is, is, you say I can tell when the person walks in if they're the character that that I have written. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, keep going. No, I, I was just gonna say I I I, I, I've, I've, I've kind of, I mean I've heard this before, so it's, it's not unusual. We've we've kind of talked about it on the on the show. But the but the the notion being that they're they're out there they're preparing and you gave some really good things suggestions for them about how they how they should look at the character what what you know their scene analysis or their breakdown or their comedic timing does that mean that if they come in I mean I, I know you're also looking for talent but what if they come in they absolutely look the part they could they look like they pull it off and they blow the reading I mean, I mean that where you kind of direct them and well. And, I, I am, uh, you know, I have a very good friend who's a casting director who I have done a number of my shows with. And she says, the problem with you is everyone walks away thinking they got it. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, that is because I, as I said, I love and respect actors and find what they do completely mystifying. And so I always try to give every actor the best possible chance. And if they say they blew it or they want to start over or if they think they screwed it up and they want to go back outside and try again, I'm always willing to say yes. Or if an actor – I mean, this this actually happened that um, when I was casting uh, one of the first series that I created. An actor came in very early, gave a pretty good reading. He didn't quite get there. We kept the casting process going, and he called the casting director a couple of weeks later and said, I would like to come back in. I just feel like I didn't quite nail it. Would the guy's mind if I came in and tried again? And I was like, of course not. Of course not. Come in. Oh, my God. Of course we would love to see you again. Um, he came back in. He got the part. I am always willing, willing to give an actor the benefit of the doubt. I try to work with them. I try to make them feel relaxed. I always, you know, feel like that, the, you know, when they come in for an audition, this is their time. You know, and I, and I want to make it as easy as possible for them to do their best work. And so I'll try and give them direction if it's helpful. But mostly I just want to give them a safe space in which to experiment and try stuff. Um, oh, that's great. Cool. 
I, I try. I mean, I could never do it. I've never acted. Uh, I have no desire to do so. Uh, any sort of public performance of any sort I find completely uh, terrifying. Um, I did a little bit of uh, performing as a dancer in college. I could never, ever do it. Um, and so I so respect what they do that I really try and make it possible for them to do their best work. Um, I know that isn't always the case for actors. They come into very cold and hostile rooms sometimes. But I okay. try and make sure my room is warm and uh, embracing. Wow, that is so cool. Uh, now, for the director who would find themselves hired on, you know, to, to direct a, a show, what what's it like? Because you've got, say, in the case of Willie Grace, you've got four distinct characters, four actors. And what about their processes and their differences as people and trying to have them work together? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, in, you've just described a, a great example because each of those four actors on Will and Grace had a process that was very distinct from one another. And so, I mean, I never directed any of those. I did I did interact with the actors quite a lot in, in helping shape performances, but James Burroughs was the director, and um, and he was, you know, instrumental in helping, uh, helping those actors build those characters. But uh, I would say, you know, for a director, the challenge is to – uh, have everyone peak at the same time, uh, no matter what their process is. Some actors are extremely technical, and so they, you know, they don't entirely trust their instincts, and so they need to, in a way, rebuild the performance that they started with instinctually when they did it the first time. And some actors can give you the same thing over and over and over and over and over again brilliantly until you tell them to change somehow. And so uh, you develop... I think as a director, you have to develop a sensitivity to what your actors need very, very fast um, and figure out, do they, need, uh, you know, do they need you to help analyze the scene with them or do they want you to stand back and let them try stuff until they get it? Um, some actors want to take three or four swings at it before, you really, before they really warm up and start giving the performance that they feel is their best. And some actors are hit it on the first time and they don't want to belabor it. And so as a director, you're constantly kind of, you know, riding the line of trying to make sure for, you know, like I said, that everyone peaks at the same time. For me, the big challenge as a director has been two things. One is to talk less, um, and the other is to be relentlessly upbeat. <laughs> wow. Uh, These are two things that don't necessarily come easily to me. Um, and, uh, and as a director, I have tried over and over again to learn both those lessons. Wow. No, that that's very cool. Very cool. I ha I want to I want to track back just briefly um to a question in from the chat room and and we sure. were talking about the auditions and um uh Joe Vampire Mom asks and asks if 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 you are talking about callbacks or do you see first auditions um Oh, it depends. I mean, sometimes if it's an actor uh uh, you know, who is known to me. Sometimes I go in for their first audition. If it's somebody with a bit of a profile, I see them on the first audition. But uh, I usually see callbacks. I think there's a weeding out process that happens right. where the casting director sees a round of people and then I see the second round. Um, uh, but uh, sometimes if it's a name I recognize or it's someone who I have seen perform and I have a particular interest in them, I saw them in a movie or in a TV show, I'll, I'll, I'll see their first audition. Um, but uh, it varies, I guess, is, is the answer to that question. 
then the follow-up to that would be, do you ever take a look at reels? Does anybody ever, the cast director, somebody go, hey, you got to see the reel? or something Yeah, I, I do. And, I, I, you know, again, this is a way in which the business has changed a lot um, since I started doing it. I, I do look at reels, um, especially I, I like to see what an actor thinks their best work is. Um, but I also think that there is no substitute for being in the room with the live body. You know, more and more, um, you know, networks, I'm talking specifically about the pilot casting process, sure. want to see people on tape. Um, and I'm, you know, as a substitute for what the older version of the process was, where they would come and they would perform for the executives. Um, right. uh, and uh, so, you know, and I kind of lament that change because I like to be able to see the actor live, even though that, they, that isn't necessarily what they'll be doing. Um, I like to be able to interact with them. I like to be able to give them notes. I like to be able to look them in the eye and kind of get a vibe. But, uh, you know, and that's stuff you can't get off a reel. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's extremely rare that I will end up casting an actor just based off a reel or based off seeing them on tape from, uh, from New York or something. I, I really like to, to spend time with them um, before they're locked in. Wow, very cool. So, so Jeff, um, we've been talking kind of primarily, I guess, about sitcom you know the the multi camera shoot the sitcom half hour show and uh but i'd like to i'd like to broaden that to like desperate housewives and the longer longer format shows a single camera you know sure and uh and and ask some of those same questions in that for example in in your longer show do you you know it's it's now you're not in front of a live audience you haven't done the same kind of prep with the comedy writers it's uh, how does it differ and then how is it the same, and how is it working with the actors it, whose processes, again, may differ? Uh, because now you have a little bit more time to shoot, you know, more like maybe like film. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. Like okay. Yeah, well, you don't have any rehearsal time. I mean, uh, you, you have right. obviously a light rehearsal just as you're blocking the scene. Right. But you do not have that opportunity to rehearse and refine and so forth. One of the nice liberties that I was given as a director with the first two episodes of Desperate Housewives that I directed was I was also the writer of the episode. So if during the rehearsal process, and again, that's a very fast rehearsal process, if during that process I wanted to change a line, I could do it, um, which is something that no other Desperate Housewives director got to do. Um, so I did get to do a little bit of that workshopping. You know, if I heard an actor struggling with a, a line because some, you know, because it felt weird in their mouth or whatever, I could change it on the spot. Um, whereas your typical Desperate Housewives director would have to call a writer down to do it. Um, so I did get to do a little bit of that, but really, the actor comes prepared, and so you are you are working with a set of assumptions that the actor has made about the scene, which more often than not are correct. Um, because so much of because we have a gigantic core ensemble um, on Desperate Housewives, the actors' instincts tend to be fairly great, um, and their understanding of the the nature of a scene tends to be right on the money. Um, and you know, I feel like as a director, my job is to make sure that the story is tracking. In other words, that the emotional track of the story is uh, correct. I remember one point when I had to say to an actor, you know, you're remember what you're doing, what you remember the scene you came from, you just such and such. And remember the scene you're going into after this, you're going to such and such. So don't peek here. Like you can't peek emotionally here because you've got to have somewhere to go in that next scene. Those are the kind of things that I kind of need to keep track of. 
But in addition, just, you know, I have certain instincts that I have honed about comedy and drama, having worked with actors uh, in my position as a showrunner on comedy uh-huh. series. And so I, I think I have a good instinctual understanding of kind of the build of a scene or the way in which to put across a joke or emotional honesty, and I try and help actors with that too. But I will say that particularly the core ensemble of Desperate Housewives, a lot of what you do is you just, again, want to give them a safe space in which to do what they need to do. Um, you know, let them feel that they can try something. You know, and if you want to go in and say, you know, maybe a little faster or don't be or, you know, I find like a lot of what I say is faster or slower in comedic scenes. I tend to like people to pace it up. But in an emotional scene, I always say, like, don't rush that. Let it happen. If it takes a moment for you to get there, take that moment. Don't rush yourself. Um, it's good. As, I mean, I know that sounds really kind of elemental, but that's a lot of what I say is just making sure that actors feel like they have the time to do what they need to do. So I hope I answered your question. I feel like no, I No, you absolutely is a great answer and and to extend that to like guest stars and to the smaller parts, you know, the featured parts and the different the you know different uh size roles. I mean somebody's going to come out and say one line, somebody's going to come out and say five lines, another person's going to be the guest star. Um uh, what do you do when you say you've got a dramatic scene and it's with the guest star? You know, and uh, they just take an inordinate amount of time. You know, they just, they, let's say somebody is shocked, and instead of being shocked and recovering and being able to say their line in, inside of a, what would seem to be a, a, an appropriate amount of time for the scene, you're on the set, uh, they just extend it and extend yeah. it. Do you let it go and then just correct it in editing, or do you say, okay, let's do it again, but you got to shorten it? I mean, I, I, I always let them get one their way. You know, that's, you know, I, it's like if, if an actor's instinct is that the scene unfolds at such and such a pace or such and such moment takes this long to happen, I always let them try it. Always. I always let them try. Just let's get one your way. And then, like, when I, then when I come in and I say, you know what, this time I think that's got to happen a little more quickly, then they at least feel respected. Like, we, okay, we got one their way. We're going to get one my way. When I get into editing, I might be wrong. Maybe theirs is better. I just, if I have a particular idea in my head of the way a moment will play, either comedically or dramatically, I always like to let the, the actor try one the way they want to try it. Um, I rarely give notes before the first take. I always like get a take or two in the can, and then I call the actor and I say, I call the actor aside, and very quietly, because I never do this in front of anybody else, I say, maybe think about, you know, I mean, to use the example you're talking about, Rex, maybe make this happen a little faster. You know, or to, you know, let it land. I'm not trying to make you be dishonest emotionally, but just you know, you're 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 crowding out the other actor by the choice you're making. So maybe you can speed this up a little bit. You know, it, it's it, again, it's it's me kind of falling back on my instincts about the way a particular scene should unfold. But as a director, right. you also have to be open to surprises. An actor may make a choice that is not what you had in mind, but it's absolutely great, and so you roll with it. And the scene becomes shaped in a different way by something an actor does. You know, I always feel like as a director, it's like, come prepared, but be willing to tear up your, your plan. You know, that's, that's, that's what I always try and do. Um, I come with a plan so that I have something to fall back on in case, you know, things don't work out. But you've got to be equally willing to tear it up. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one goes back to, what you said about your experiences, the intuitions that you've have that you've shaped through your experiences and working, you know, through your career. If you can articulate 
Because I know sometimes it's hard. You know, you know what you do, but it's harder to say what you do when you, you know when you're not doing it. Um, is there are there some tips, suggestions, uh, uh, advice that you can you know director suggestions for uh, helping a scene to unfold comedically in terms of pacing and timing and the kinds of things that that you have a critical eye to. Well, I do, you know, um, you're talking specifically about comedy, huh? Yeah. I, mean, um, I, think that, I think pace is important in comedy, pace and surprise. And I do, you know, I, you know Burroughs used to say that 100% of comedy is surprise. Um, and I do think that the, you know, the ability to keep the audience on its toes and for actors to do things that are unexpected is important and not to telegraph those moves. And that's why I think, you know, comedy tends to happen at a fairly rapid clip. Um, but, um, gosh, let me think. I mean, uh, uh, I think also most really good comedy comes out of a certain honesty about things. I don't tend to like moments that feel constructed. And so I'm always looking for ways. I remember a, a conversation with an actor this past week about a scene that was devised in a particular way, which was designed to put across a comedic moment. And she did not just, she did not feel plugged into this. And so I tried to help her with what the other actors did to create a certain sense of urgency so that the comedy of the scene, which was all about urgency, could happen. Um, but it's all about kind of, you know, um, ah, got the way in which the, the gears of the machine mesh. So, God, I feel I'm not answering your question. Hmm. No, 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 no. no. You I, I think, um, yeah, I do think that uh, uh, that you know those 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 elements are important to comedy. But I I do like to you know when you're working with actors of the caliber that uh, that I have, I tend to like let give them a, a place to experiment and then validate the result. You know, one of the things, again, James Burroughs is the director I've worked with more than any other person. Um, and he has a big, booming laugh, but he doesn't do it all the time. He only does it when something's really, really good. He has mm -hmm. a great way of validating good choices on his actor's part. And when you hear that laugh, you feel like the finger of God has come down and touched <laughs> you on the forehead. And so I feel like as a director, that's my job. Create that space and then validate the choices that are great. The choices that aren't great won't get a laugh, and then somebody then you'll try something else. Um, but uh, but experimenting is really really important in that regard, and then letting the actors try stuff. I know I just ramble uh, all over the place, but you no, but not, at all, Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> not at all, Jeff. Not at all, Jeff. I I I think it's very useful and, and very helpful. And and I know that sometimes it's hard to articulate and say, here's what I think is critical in a scene. But what you've done, or what I think you've done. Is is you you demonstrate an attitude and an atmosphere or a climate for the set and the environment in which your actors are going to take place, and creating this safe space for them. Whereas I think a lot of people are so overly concerned that they don't look bad or that they that, that there aren't mistakes or that they don't get fired as a director or actor or whatever that sometimes the place is more hostile than it needs to be. I mean, I don't think it ever needs to be hostile. So so what you say is very. Is, is uh, I think very apt and very appropriate to to how uh, you as a director or anyone can help uh, assist an actor in the performance. Yeah, well, I mean, I have I know, and I, I'm reminded of this every time I step onto a set as a director that I still have a great deal to learn about shot making um, and blocking and uh, 
you know, uh, which shoulder the camera, you know, which shoulder the camera is over and which side of the line right. we're on. I'm still learning all that stuff. Um, even though I've been making shows for 20 years and editing shows, I'm still learning about all this stuff. But the thing I do think I understand pretty well um, is what actors respond to. And um, one thing that, that Jimmy did on Friends and on Will and & Grace and on Partners was he let the actors feel that there was always a safety net and that they could not fail. There was no failure on that set. You know? And so people felt free to try stuff and to be loose. You know, um, what is it? Um, there was this quote I saw from a Thomas Pinchon novel where it says, uh, be cool, but care. And I thought that uh-huh. was so good. Like, uh-huh. be cool, but care. Don't grip the wheel so tightly that you can't steer, but steer. <laughs> and so I think that um, the, the, the number one thing I've learned from the directors that I've worked with, the best directors I've worked with, and again, most of my experience is in some subspecies of comedy, is – to validate and to, you know, and to make the actors feel safe. When I read about David Fincher making someone do 71 takes of a scene, I just can't imagine what it must be like to go through that. God knows he gets great movies out of it. He absolutely does. But I just really was – take 68 appreciably worse than take 71? Really? I just find it very hard to believe. Um, but, you know, uh, you can't argue with the result. And, and I know that there are certainly directors who are legendary for bullying and, antis- and, and, you know, and intimidating their actors into giving a performance. I'm sure that can be done. I could not do it. That's um, just not the kind of person I am, and it's not the way I approach the actors that I collaborate with. Um, I really try and trust them um, and trust their instincts and know that at a certain point an actor is going to have a deeper understanding of a character and a scene and a comedic moment than I can ever hope to have. Um, and so I just want to kind of let them play and, uh, be cool, but care. <laughs> well, with all due respect to David Fitcher, I can't imagine, I mean, this is film. I mean, there's something about assembling or, or it's digital, but I mean, the, the idea that it's film, it, you know, it, 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 there's, there's the editing process, there's cutting. I can't, I can't think that there would except in the rarest or extremest of circumstances that there would be a scene that you couldn't say, all right, you know what, we, we could cut this together in a different way. You know, I'd wanted one yeah. long shot, but it's not going to work out. I'm going to use the first half of this and the second half of that, and, this, you know, and I'm going to cut away. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't imagine 71 takes either. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's just, I just – I don't know what, what kind of toll it must take on an actor to be told again, again, again. I just – I can't imagine but again, maybe well, I, it unlocks something. Maybe there yeah. is something that happens around, you know, like the way that like repetition in Andy Kaufman's comedy, the repetition sure. became horrible and then funny again. Maybe there is something it does in breaking down an actor's defenses so they become raw at a certain point. I just, I don't, <laughs> it's not something well, I would feel. I mean, and maybe as David Fincher, you are, you are assured enough. So that when you hit take 68, you know to go three more takes and that that's where you'll get what you want. I just can't imagine it. I really right, can't. So, uh, it I'm may, it, you know, as I said, you can't argue with the product. He makes brilliant movies. Right. Um, it's just very antithetical to the way that I'm accustomed to working, which is loose. Uh, loose, off the cuff, easygoing, um, and yet not unperfectionistic. I care a lot about making things great. I care way too much about making things great. I just have, I think, a different idea about how to achieve that. 
Well, it, it, that, it, that's that, that's very cool. I I do think maybe you know by wearing somebody down, you you can get something that you weren't getting. You know, it might show up finally, or the person you know out of exasperation finally gives up, and there is something yeah. right there that you. But it just seems like if you're dealing with a schedule and you're dealing with time and you're dealing with all sorts of people, that seventy one takes, you know, is a long road to go. Yeah. In order to get, yeah. Get which one? But. Uh, uh, I wanted to uh, ask a question going back from the chat room again regarding uh, what we were talking about in the scene, and then I and then I want to uh, move on. They asked how much of the comedy pacing in a show, and again, I guess it would vary from show to show, uh, is is due to the editing process versus what what you actually saw. Um, you can you can uh, you know you can pace up a show uh, and you can pace up a scene in editing. Um, there are certainly uh, you know, comedic rhythms, you know, I always think about the music of a scene, you know, there are certain ways to create comedic, uh, you know, to enlarge comedic moments with reaction shots or cutaways. Um, I think, you know, I think an entirely different comedic vocabulary was birthed by South Park, which was the art of cutting away right when the joke ends, as opposed to letting it burn for a moment. I always think of South Park as the progenitor of that trend of just do the joke and get out. Um, and it's so different from the kind of more theatrical style of comedy where you do the joke and you burn and you let it land and somebody reacts and so forth. So there are, there are different ways to create that in editing. But, uh, but you can't make an unfunny moment funny in editing. Um, I, I've never seen it happen. You can help something that's 40% of the way there to get to 80% of the way there in editing. But uh, really, I don't. I can't think of real comedy performances that have been constructed in the editing room. It's got you know, Burr, you know, Burr is saying it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Um, it's got to be in the in the script, and it's got to be in the performance. Um, otherwise, you get into editing, and you're very very sad. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, let me go back to the question that I was going to ask you before, and we've got about twenty minutes. We actually not. We don't. We got about fifteen minutes. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Left it. I am enjoying this so much. I got to ask if you would be willing to come back. You know, Absolutely. Let the listeners yeah, know. Yeah, we haven't even half my resume. We haven't even covered, so we got a lot <laughs> okay, more to do. Gotten even <laughs> close to it. We're we're still on the first show. Uh, yeah, exactly. The pilot that pilot for you. Yeah, but no, this is this is really exciting. This is great information, Thanks. and I and I do appreciate it so much. Um, but going again, going from uh, the single camera to a multi camera, and then back to single camera, and how how does that how does that work for you? And what and what differences are there um, for for director student directors right now to to know and understand? Yeah, well, I I do think uh, you know um, multi camera is much more driven by jokes. I, I found, you know, when I went from doing Dream On, which was a single camera show, which was not very jokey, it was very character comedy based, the jokes often happened in cutaways to those black and white clips that we had on the show. Um, uh-huh. But it was not a jokey, jokey show. And so when I went from working on Dream On to working on Friends, the art of crafting a comedic line was something I kind of had to continue to learn. Um, and uh, so the, the, you know, the, the crafting of a punchline, not that Friends wasn't character comedy, because it was. Those were six extremely well-defined characters, each of whom had their own point of view. Um, but it was linear. And so punchlines, creating laugh moments that the audience will go ha-ha-ha at, was something that, uh, that I had to continue to learn. And then, of course, going from Friends to Will and Grace, there is no linear show than Will and Grace. 
we actually at, at, at times would have to cut back on the number of jokes per page in order to make a, a dramatic moment land uh, because you can't really put across uh, a truly emotional moment inside of a joke. And so we would sometimes have to pare away things, take jokes out of the script to make sure that you were actually paying attention to what a character was going through in a scene. Um, and uh, we were very, 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 very perfectionistic about uh, punchlines on Will and Grace and would continue honing them even on show night. If a joke didn't get a laugh in a first take, all the writers would bunch together and pitch different versions, bring them back to the actors, and do an entirely different joke on the second take. So um, that's something I really had to learn. But then going from Will and Grace to Desperate Housewives, we definitely do some joke lines on Desperate Housewives, and they get quoted on the back page of Entertainment Weekly. But, uh, but it's much more character comedy. And I find that for a lot of writers who are making the transition from multi-camera to single camera, uh, the, the jokiness in the context of a single camera show feels very forced um, and can feel kind of like clanky in a way. Um, and so... You know, when you make the transition back to single camera, it, the comedy comes much more out of behavior uh, and much more out of whether it's anxiety or neurosis or uh, logoria or something. You know, that the comedy has to come from a different place. It can't just come from a finely tuned punchline. Um, certainly, the, for example, like The Office gets a lot of their comedy, particularly the British version of The Office, which I actually I have to admit I've seen more of than the American but the comedy uh -huh. comes out of discomfort and embarrassment and inappropriateness and sheepishness. There aren't a lot of jokes. I think uh, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to quote a punchline per se from the British version of The Office. All the comedy comes from inappropriate um, and reaction shots and so forth. So it's, just, it's, it's a very different sort of art form. And, uh, and I always find when making the transition from one to another, I kind of have to constantly recalibrate um, what uh, what the comedic sensibility is of a particular show? Well, it it seems, uh, and I'm glad you addressed that. It, it seems that, you know, it, and I guess I don't want to ask this. It has to do with the development. It must have to do with the writing. You sit down, and you say, "I want a humorous show, or I want a, a laugh every second. It's kind of like the stand-up comedy has a certain cadence. It's like you yeah. need to laugh about every thirty seconds. You know, you know, there's got to be a punchline, a laugh of some sort that comes through. And there are comedians who violate that, and other comedians who adhere very strongly to to that kind of formula. Um, and so, if you've got a gag show versus just the humorous show, I mean. I guess you put what the, the British version of The Office in more like it's funny, but it's not. It's like you said, it's not a gag show. So, well, I mean, I mean my wife can't watch the show because all uh, most of the comedy comes from cringing. Right. You know, it's right. you are you are. I mean, there. That, by the way, I don't want to underrate that show because I adore yeah, it, and not only is show. it a, a brilliantly realized show, but the emotional underpinnings of the show are so extraordinary. Um, I remember when I saw the climax of the uh, Tim and Dawn story in the uh, the Christmas episode they did. I, it took my breath away. I mean, they had built the relationship between these two characters with so many small gestures that by the time that Tim finally declared, declared himself to her, spoiler alert, it was uh, it was heart wrenching um, because of its smallness. They built amazing emotion inside that. Um, but uh, as a comedic show, it gets its last by making you feel embarrassed for the people you're watching. 
Well, what, big... yes, and I, and I I fully appreciate that form of humor and the show. Um, you know, one of my fa- I mean, I, one of my favorite films of of old was what I would consider a funny movie, but not. It's not like Groundhog Day. It's not like uh, Ghostbusters. Was After Hours? Oh yeah. Yeah, Which but that's, make, that's it, almost kind of surrealist kind dark of Dark human. It, it was like, yeah. yeah, but it's dark kind of thing. But I would I would say that's like what I would tell my friends, this is what living in Hollywood really is like, even <laughs> though it's a place in New York. I go, <laughs> this, this is, this is, these are the kind of people I meet. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. And, and because it, it, it somehow it spoke, you know, and it, and, yeah. and it was in the discomfort that you found the humor. I mean, at least I did. Um I, uh, I, I, you know what I loved about After Hours to me, the, 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 and this may not be an image that stayed with you, but I just loved it, is, you know, Terry Gar has a beehive hairdo, and an oh, actual yeah. bee flies out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was fantastic. <laughs> I love that. I, that's, that's why I always think of it as a slightly sort of Dadaist, sort of surrealist kind of sure. comedy. Like, yeah. in no other comedy would an actual bee fly out of a beehive hairdo. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. <laughs> <laughs> um in our remaining minutes, and uh, yes. and and now we do have like about nine minutes. Maybe okay. Eight. Um, this is really great. TV today. I mean, I really think television has grown up from where it was decades ago, and uh, it, it it offers so much more, and in many ways is better than the films. A lot of that we're seeing, uh, both comedy or drama. How do you feel about that? I mean, I completely agree with you. I, I I mean I don't you know I when again when I was coming up in the business TV was sort of the you know real actors didn't want to do TV there were certain feature actors right. who would never stoop to even guest star on a half hour comedy show it was a very 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 big deal if you got Tom Hanks to guest star on The Naked Truth oh my God isn't it amazing that a feature actor of that caliber would appear on the small screen that is, I I think the exact opposite is true now. I think TV so outguns the movies, not just in comedy, but in drama. Right, I think, right. you know, I always argued through the 90s that TV comedy was way, way ahead of film comedy. Uh, you know, I uh-huh. would stack Friends and Frasier and Will and Grace, um, and i got to name some more shows that I didn't work on, uh, Roseanne, <laughs> um, uh, uh, against any Frasier. film comedy from that era. I just think yeah. we totally had it going on in terms of, of – Real, real funny moments and jokes and well-rounded characters and particularly female characters. I think TV did a very, you know, television comedy did, had better roles for women uh, through that decade than film ever did. Um, but I did think that uh, drama was playing catch-up. And, uh, you know, there were extraordinary shows like Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law and Allie McBeal that were great. But I now think the TV drama stomps on film drama. I mean, uh, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, Homeland. These are just unbelievably oh, well-made shows with tremendous actors in them, a lot of whom are refugees from the feature world. Brilliant uh, storytelling, sweeping visuals. I, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, where would you want to be other than TV? I, you know, my, my friends who work in features are jealous of the kind of stuff that we get to do in television. And the fact that we actually make it, as opposed to think about it for three years. Um, <laughs> right. You know, right. it's, um, it's breathtaking. Um, 
I still think that there is more to be done in television comedy. I think television drama is having a golden age right now. And, uh, you know, I absolutely revere Breaking Bad. I think it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, you know, for me, one of the touchstones uh, creatively is American cinema of the 70s. And I think Breaking Bad comes as close as any contemporary television show has to those great American movies, those gritty dramas and edgy comedies of the 70s. Um, and uh, so I think it's extraordinary. I do think American TV comedy could be better. Um, I just think in terms of the kind of comedy show that captures the imagination the way that Roseanne did or the Wonder Years did, I, I do think we can do better. Um, I like the shows that are on, don't get me wrong, but I just think that the next wave of TV comedy has yet to crest. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of those times. I'm glad the comedy is making a comeback, but a truly great transcendent TV comedy I think is still ahead of us. Wow, that's cool. Um, uh, maybe it'll be husbandthe-series.com. There you um, go. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I you know I I I think that TV is totally where it's at. I just think it's it's you know when you see like Dustin Hoffman is starring in a series right. for HBO. Like we have we have nothing to envy our uh, our screenwriter siblings for. Yeah, it's it's it is amazing. I. Uh, I predominantly, I mean, I grew up on television, but but I decided at some point I wanted to be a film actor, and I just really wanted to focus on film, and and so I would what I did watch for television was primarily British comedies like Bless This House or Rising Damp or Father Dear Father or some of these yeah seventies and things like yes, that. Yes, Minister, I love and, that show. Yes, Minister, and I and I and I and I love those, and I didn't really watch much of the the, the shows here, uh, although yeah. Except in rerun, I would you know I'd catch Mary Tyler Moore in rerun, or I'd catch you. In the, and um, but when I got married, I was primarily in HBO. I would watch movies, and my then wife was was into sitcoms, and so I started right. watching sitcoms. And I and I got to say, I mean, I watch more TV now than I see movies, frankly. Um, yeah. And I'm always checking out the new shows, and whether it's cable or not cable. One of my favorite shows was was Rescue Me. Great show, with Dennis Leary. You know, and yeah. it, because it had it had the it had comedy, but it was to me too. There was some of that cringingness of of wrestling. Yeah, but talk about creating a world. I just think I, uh, you know, in the same way that The Wire invited you into a world that you really had never seen before. I think Rescue Me did the same thing. That uh, you know, the world of that character um, and of the people who do that job and his particular you know twisted relationship life. It really right. just gave you a window into something you didn't see anywhere else. And and nobody nobody <laughs> there were very few redeeming people or moments you know I mean it was all yeah. kind of just fun the antihero hero one of one of the best yeah. antiheroes I would say of recent TV history was that was that show but uh, yeah no television definitely is is exciting and uh, uh, I'm thrilled you know and and so let me ask you this you're you're um, in, in about the four minutes that we've got left. What um, and then uh, I promise listeners that you're going to come back and talk again. Of but, course. Uh, what what's next for you? You've got husbandsseries dot com and everybody should go check that out. That's the web series that you and 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 uh, Brad Bell and Janice are uh, producing, directing, and 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 making. And uh, and you just did Desperate Housewives and you're working on that. Uh, anything else you want to share with us? Tell us yeah, let's see. On. Well, you know, we are uh, uh, we are. Uh, I'm actually having lunch with Jane Espenson today to talk uh, about, among other things, uh, uh, plans for a possible second series of uh, Husbands. So that's in the works. 
I'm uh, editing uh, episode 16 of Desperate Housewives that I directed, which will air on the 11th of March. It is a very, very big episode um, in the history of the series. A totally staggeringly huge thing happens in it uh, that I think people will uh, be very excited and anxious about. Um, And uh, I have a pilot in contention at ABC right now that I'm waiting to hear about. And uh, honestly, Rex, I am, uh, you know, the... um, uh, you know, the last line of 2001 is um, he sat marshalling his thoughts and brooding over his still untested powers. Uh, he was unsure what to do next, but he would think of something. Uh, I am at that phase right now. I have to think about what I want to do next. It's an enviable position to be in. Um, typically, this time of year, I am under contract to something or somebody. Um, but I don't know yet. I got a lot of cool opportunities, and uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'll be starting to think about what the rest of 2012 will be, uh, assuming I'm not swept away in some Mayan apocalypse. So, you know, for now, I'm, uh, I am considering a vast field of options, uh, all of which are exciting. So, uh, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll come back and I'll keep you posted. Well, that's fantastic. Now, I'm going to have to let you go so that you can go and do those things, but I am going to give you a brief call right back after the show ends. Sure. Just just so that you know that. And, uh, and we'll have Jeff back on sometime soon. We'll let you know when that's going to be. It'll be announced. And uh, I really do appreciate you being here. That was it was absolutely. a total trip, uh, Rex. Thank you so much for your great questions, and please thank uh, uh, your uh, acolytes on the web for their good questions too. It was fun. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so I'll call you in just a few minutes. But uh, okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Have a great have a great day. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. And there you have it. Uh, fascinating, Mr. Jeff Greenstein, a director. And uh, we've been talking about television, comedy, writing, and, and, and so many things. We've got so many more things to talk about. Uh, just a wealth of uh, fabulous information. I hope that you will uh, please share this show, uh, as well as all the shows, with uh, your friends and your contacts and, and, uh, and, and spread the word far and wide. Again, it's Husband the Series. It's a web series. It's husbandtheseries.com. And, uh, and, and again, Jeff is directing uh, currently uh, Desperate Housewives, so you can always catch it there, catch him there. But, uh, but do check out Husbands the series. And um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Rex X Movie BT. It's Rex X Movie BT. The last word's abbreviated. Rex X Movie Beat on YouTube. Rex X Movie Beat spelled out completely on YouTube. And please do become a friend at Facebook at Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends. That's Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends. Give us a like over there and uh, and join us. And uh, again, I want to thank Jeff Greenstein for being here today, and I want to thank you, my readers and my listeners of Movie Beat. We've got many more exciting guests coming up. Joe Dante tomorrow, different time, different time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, and uh, and and whatever, wherever else and whatever else around the world. Um, and then Peter Marshall's coming back on Friday at the regular time, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. So be sure to stay tuned for those. And then we're on hiatus until uh, the beginning of March when I've got many more exciting guests coming up. So please, stay tuned. Go back and listen to all the episodes of Rex Eggs Movie Beat that you've been wanting to, that you didn't subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, download it to your favorite electronic device so you have it with you wherever you go and you'll never miss one of these again. And again, share. Leave comments at the player and rate and review the shows as the podcast, please. That's what you can do in exchange for getting this absolutely wonderful information free. All right, everybody, have a fabulous day. 
make your movies, complete your projects. And until we meet the next time, that is a wrap.